All right, Luke chapter 9, starting at verse 37. Now it happened on the next day when they had come down from the mountain that a great multitude met him. Suddenly a man from the multitude cried out saying, Teacher, I implore you, look on my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and it departs from him with great difficulty bruising him. So I implored your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Let's remember the context. Just before this, and this is where we ended in our verse-by-verse study through the Gospel of Luke. Just before this, the disciples, or at least three of them, Peter, James, and John, were with Jesus upon the Mount of Transfiguration. And they saw something that no other human eyes had seen. They saw something with, with God's majesty, with the radiance of his glory being manifest in Jesus and Moses and Elijah together there with him. They saw something that was mind-blowing in its power, in its, in its presence there among them. So you have this glorious, literally, a mountaintop experience there at the Mount of Transfiguration. You come down, and there's the needy multitude. And then secondly, among the needy multitude is a father with a demon-possessed boy. You know, what a shock to the system. And I, I know it's a little bit trite, but it really is a fitting illustration of so often how it is in the Christian life. You have a powerful, transcendent, touched by the glory of God experience. You come down to, it, to, to the yuck, to sometimes the demonic of everyday life. And that's just sometimes how it is. You see, you thought that something was wrong when that kind of thing happened. Really, that's how it is. We're not given these beautiful, powerful experiences so that we can stay there on the Mount of Transfiguration forever. No, you've got to come down and mix it up with daily people, some of them who need you very desperately. And that's exactly what the disciples experienced. So they had come down from the mountain, now then into the valley, and what happens? There's a multitude that needs them, and among that multitude there's a father with a demon-possessed boy. And what did he say? I love how he puts it in verse 38. He says, teacher, I implore you, look upon my son. He knew something about the compassion of Jesus. Jesus, all you have to do is look on him, and I know your heart will be stirred to meet his need. Look at him, Jesus. Just look upon my need, and I know that you will care for my son who is in such desperate situation. Because look at what it says in verse 39. It's described as saying, a spirit seizes him, and suddenly he cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and departs from him with great difficulty bruising him. This description fits what we might call today an epileptic seizure. But whatever the case was, whatever medical diagnosis that we might put upon it today, Jesus knew, and the reality of the situation, that this boy's problem was not merely physical. Yes, we know that there is a physiological, a biological thing that goes on in a person's body that makes them vulnerable or liable to such seizures, to such fits, epilepsy, whatever similar sort of thing it might be. We know that there are totally physical and biological things, but there are sometimes also spiritual dimensions to these things. And Jesus had the perception to know that it wasn't just a biological problem that the young boy had. Jesus could have addressed it if it was just a biological problem. But it was more than a biological problem. Ladies and gentlemen, if it was just a biological problem, Jesus would have said to the man, Oh, no, sir, your, your son doesn't have a demonic spirit. It's just a biological thing. Let me heal him. 
But in this boy's situation, it was something more. It was something different. There was something beyond merely physiological causes. Now, the father sensed this. Therefore, while Jesus and the other disciples were up there on the Mount of Transfiguration, the remaining nine disciples were down in the village below. And the man had brought the boy to the nine disciples and said, please do something for my son. And can you imagine what that scene looked like? The disciples said, well, we're experiencing this kind of thing. Jesus had already sent us out. We'd had some success with teaching. We had some success in casting demons out, which they had. It's described earlier in Luke chapter 9 that they did have success. We know this kind of thing. We can do this. And I don't know what they said. You know, I don't know what words they said, what prayers they prayed, what approach they did. It just didn't work. There was something about the demonic spirit that troubled that boy that made that spirit more stubborn than others. This is what I want you to understand. The disciples had had some measure of success delivering people under the bondage of demonic spirits before. But this particular demonic spirit, in a way that I don't know that we can adequately describe, this particular demonic spirit was more stubborn, was more difficult to remove, was more deeply entrenched. He had his hooks in deeper somehow. How can this be the case? Well, the Bible tells us in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, that there are ranks of demonic powers. And the ranking seems to imply that some have more strength, some have more authority, some have more cunning. I can't say we understand it fully, but we just understand that there's some kind of gradation of strength or cunning or ability in demonic spirits. Some are tougher than others. And this was a real problem because the disciples, no doubt, full of compassion, maybe with a touch of pride, felt we can solve this boy's problem. Bring him to us. Nothing. Nothing worked at all. So what did it do? Well, it drove them back upon Jesus. Verse 41. Then Jesus answered and said, Oh, faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. And as he was still coming, the demon threw him down and convulsed him. Then Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit, healed the child, and gave him back to his father. What did Jesus do first? First, Jesus, is it improper for me to say Jesus vented a little bit? He, he, he looked around. He looked around at the failure of his disciples. He looked around at perhaps the superstitious faith of the people that would have more faith in, in the Jesus than they would in the disciples. The, and and they, he looked around at just the, the, the brokenness in the world. And he says just sort of in this venting way, Oh, faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you and bear with you? I just picture Jesus venting a little bit when he says that. But after he's vented, what does he do? He says, bring that boy to me. I'm going to meet that young man's need. And notice this. It says very powerfully, bring your son here, Jesus says. And then in verse 42, it says, as he was still coming, the demon threw him down and convulsed him. I just want you to picture that scene for a moment. Jesus says, this faithless and perverse generation, how long do I got to bear with this? Bring your son here. And as the father brings the boy to it, The boy has another one of his episodes, another one of his demonically inspired traumas right there in front of Jesus. I want you to understand, this is an illustration. This is an example of what so often happens in the lives of people 
who just begin to come to Jesus. They just begin to come to Jesus, and it seems to get worse than ever before. Notice how it's phrased there. It says, and he was still coming. The demon threw him down and convulsed him. That's what it says in verse 42. It's as if the demon was saying, this is my last chance. I've got to make this father so afraid. I've got to fill this boy with so much doubt. I've got to intimidate Jesus or somebody. I'm not going to give it up easy. I'm going to go out fighting. And he threw him down to the ground and convulsed him. Think about this. Think about, you know, that praying mother or that praying father who prays for their, their, their child who needs Jesus so badly and their life is so messed up and they just can't seem to see it and they're just pleading and praying for that son or that daughter and, and they come closer and closer to Jesus and goes, yes, and then, some, and then it's like the devil throws them down. Well, listen, this is what you've got to do. Don't lose heart. Don't lose heart in the midst of that. You see, the, the boy was so precious to God and so hated by Satan that he wanted to throw everything he could at that last moment. You know, uh, Charles Spurgeon had a great sermon on this verse. This is what its title was. He titled it, The Devil's Last Throw. And he considered some of the lies that Satan throws at somebody just as they're coming to Jesus. Just as their heart is beginning to be stirred, just as they're starting to come to Jesus, it's as if the devil throws more lies at them ever. And and he just listed a few of them. Here's some of the lies. You're not elect. You can't come to Jesus. You're too big of a sinner. You can't come to Jesus. It's too late. You can't come to him. There's no use in trying. Just give up. Or this won't work for you. I just imagine there's somebody probably listening to me right now. If not in person, you're going to hear this later on. You're going to hear it through the miracle of MP3, or you're going to hear it on a podcast. You're going to hear it someplace or another down the road, and you're going to be in that exact situation I'm speaking of. You've started drawing close to Jesus. You haven't fully surrendered your life to him. You wouldn't say that you're really converted by the Spirit of God, but the closer you get, it seems like the worse things get, and now Satan's shouting at you. He's telling you, no, forget it. You're too far gone. You're too messed up. It won't work for you. Don't you see what he's doing? He's trying to throw you down in a last desperate act before you yield your life to him. Well, don't go for it. What did Jesus do? Verse 42, Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the child. Bam, it's gone. That's all there was to it. If the devil tries to throw you down as you're coming to Jesus, just walk right, then crawl to Jesus. Then roll to Jesus. Then do whatever you got to do. You just, comp- you just get yourself to Jesus, and he, he will bring the healing and the power that you need. Powerful, amazing. Verse 43. And they were all amazed at the majesty of God. I'm sure they were. They were amazed at the majesty of God from the Mount of Transfiguration. They were amazed at the majesty of God when they saw the authority and the power of Jesus, that even when the devil was trying to make a last-ditch effort to hold on to that young boy, Jesus would have none of it. They were all amazed at the majesty of God, but while everyone marveled at all these things which Jesus did, he said to his disciples, let these words sink down into your ears, for the Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men. 
But they did not understand the saying, and it was hidden from them, so they did not perceive it, and they were afraid to ask him about this saying. You know, sometimes I think we try to psychoanalyze the disciples too much, but I can't resist it. Okay, here's how I think it worked in their heads. Jesus, earlier in the chapter, speaks to his disciples, and he says, guys, I need you to understand, I'm going to Jerusalem, and they're going to reject me, and I'm going to be betrayed, and I'm going to be given over to the Gentiles, and I'm going to die a shameful death on the cross, but don't worry, I've got to, I'm going to rise from the dead. Well, this totally blew their minds. They couldn't believe it. They, no, what are you talking about? We, we didn't follow you because you're a loser. We followed you because you're a winner. Losers die at the end, not winners. Jesus is all wrong. But then two things happened after that. The first thing was the transfiguration. Now, wouldn't that encourage you? Yes. Okay, he is the winner. Look at him. Moses, Elijah, Jesus, glory, winner. That's good. Then he comes down off the mountain, mixes it with the needy crowds again, and then he delivers this boy who's bound with the demon. Man, that's what a winner does. And I can just imagine the disciples thinking something, that this is some of the psychoanalysts that I can't really, you know, keep myself from this, trying to get inside their heads. The disciples think something like this. I'm glad he got that crucifixion thing out of his system. He had us going there for a minute. But when I saw him, you know, magnified on the Mount of Transfiguration, when I saw him deal with that demon, I knew this man's a winner. He's no loser. Thank heavens he's got that stuff out of his business. And then what does Jesus say? He says, no, let these words sink down into your ears. I am going to the cross. Don't you forget it. This is what God has called me to do. You see, you might only think about it occasionally, but I want you to think about it all the time. I want you to put a focus upon it. I am going to the cross. The Son of Man is about to be betrayed. I'm going to go to the cross, and are you guys going to come with me? We're going to see just in this chapter, Jesus is going to begin his journey towards Jerusalem, and it's almost as if he's speaking to the disciples very plainly, going, this is what's going to happen to me to Jerusalem. Are you in? Are you in with this? You guys want to stay up around Galilee, or do you want to come with me? This is what's waiting for you. He announced it to him plain and simple. Verse 46. Then a dispute arose among them as to which of them would be the greatest. Can we just stop right there? Isn't that great? You know, I, the, the disciples, they're interested in the scriptures. They're interested in, you know, theology. They're interested in the truth. And people who, who do that, they love to talk about theology. They love to talk about this biblical passage and that biblical. They love to talk about this doctrine and that doctrine and how the different doctrines and this rabbi and that rabbi and all these great discussions, all these great debates and things that you love to talk about. What was the disciples' seemingly favorite topic of conversation? Which of them was the greatest? I'm better than you. No, I'm better than you. I, isn't this crazy? that this was actually a, a topic of conversation with them. Which one of them would be the greatest? All right, let, let me read it again. Then a dispute arose among them as to which would be the greatest. And Jesus, perceiving the thoughts of their heart, took a little child and set him by him and said to them, whoever receives this little child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him 
who sent me, for he who is least among you all will be the greatest. The disciples were very much concerned with this question as to who would be the greatest. It's something that they thought about and talked about a lot. Maybe they wondered if Jesus had not already chosen one of them to be the greatest. After all, did he not take a privileged three up upon the Mount of Transfiguration? Maybe one of those, Peter, James, and John, maybe one of those would be the greatest. And so they're thinking, okay, well, it's me, it's me. And and maybe, well, let's let Jesus settle this. Now, by the way, when they were thinking of greatness, they were thinking Jesus is going to Jerusalem. He may very well establish his messianic kingdom. Who are his chief lieutenants going to be? Who's going to be, so to speak, the vice president? Who's going to be the secretary of state? Who's going to be the secretary of defense? Who's going to be all these great cabinet officers, so to speak, if you were to analogize it to our political structure? So what did Jesus do? Verse 47 says that Jesus, perceiving the thought of their heart, took a little child and set him by him. What did Jesus do? Now, he takes this child. They're, They're having their little argument. No, I'm better. No, I'm better. He takes a little child and he just sticks him right there. You see what he's saying right there? This child should show you something about greatness. Now, right there, I am blown away at the humility of Jesus. If Jesus really wanted to talk to them about greatness, don't you think he could have said something like this? Hey, morons, I'm the greatest. Don't you think he could have just, just referred to himself? Okay, but he didn't. The humility of Jesus would not allow him to speak so disgracefully of the disciples, as I jokingly said, morons, but either to make this direct reference to himself. Instead, what did he do? He took a child and put them in the midst, and he said, this child is your model of greatness. He said this, if you guys want to be great, learn something from this little child. Now, please remember, especially in that culture, Children were of little importance. They weren't threatening. They weren't concerned with social status. And they weren't jaded by success or ambition. And and when we fulfill the same kind of humble place that a child had in that culture, then we're on our way to greatness. Now, I don't want anybody to mistake. A child doesn't show us everything about greatness. It's not a perfect illustration. But in many ways, the child shows us the kind of character that Jesus is looking for, for those who will be great in his kingdom. I'm turning the values upside down, Jesus says. You think that the way to be great is to kick and fight and punch and climb all over people and be king of the mountain and look upon all those people that you've stepped on and defeated so that you can say, I'm great. And Jesus says, no, that's not how a child works child is something different. A child has a different kind of character. Notice this too. Just a side point. Jesus did not point to Peter. Now, under some theological systems, people who prize Peter as being, you know, some very, shouldn't have Jesus said, well, Peter, he's the greatest among you. He didn't say that. He took this little child, and what did he say? Did you see it there in verse 48? Whoever receives this little child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him also who sent me. 
this child is a representation of me. You receive this child, it's like you receive me. And if you receive me, you receive my Father in heaven. That's what Jesus said. Indirectly, Jesus pointed to himself as being the greatest in the kingdom. Most pointedly, he put that child forth as an example. Listen, is there any doubt that when you had the 12 disciples, Jesus and whoever else was around there, and that child of those 14, 15, however many people, who was actually the greatest in the kingdom there among them? Wasn't it Jesus himself? But Jesus says, no, what's important about this child that I want you to learn is the way he's like me. Jesus said, I'm not concerned about my own status. I don't have to be the center of attention. Just like a child, I'm unable to deceive. I don't have an intimidating presence. That's how it is with children. Honestly, you're walking along the street, a dark alley, a shadowy figure comes down the other side. If, if it's an eight-year-old kid, you're not afraid, are you? Children aren't intimidating. Children can't deceive, can they? You ever seen a seven-year-old try to tell a lie? It's actually pretty funny. Again, I'm not trying to say, and neither was Jesus, that children are a perfect representation of the kingdom. But they're a powerful one. Now, Since the nature of Jesus in these regards is like a little child, how we treat those who are humble like children shows what we think of the nature of Jesus. That's why Jesus said, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. You despise those children. There's things about those children that actually you also despise about Jesus. Why? He says this here in verse 48. For he who is least among you all will be great. This is fantastic, isn't it? How how strange this is. How wonderful that there's a room full of people here tonight who are reading this and actually taking it serious. That Jesus says, okay, here's what I want you to think about if you're going to be a part of my kingdom. Be least. Anybody put that anywhere on their list of New Year's resolutions? Be least. You see, the desire to be praised and to gain recognition should be foreign to a follower of Jesus. Jesus wants his followers to embrace least as a choice. It's entirely different when least is impressed upon you and you have no choice about it, right? But it's a different thing when you choose to be least and when you're happy with it. When you can just be, okay, I I don't have to be the center of attention. I don't have to be the person out front. It's actually quite easy to despise humble people. To look at them and write them off as losers. The kind of people who are never going to make it and are competitive and aggressive and your get-ahead world. But listen, when you despise humble people, you can actually be guilty of despising Jesus. This aspect of humility and giving preference to other people in the Christian faith, it's often been derided. It's been despised. 
uh, Nietzsche and others, they, they glorified what they called the will to power. And they looked down upon Jesus and his followers. They said that they were weak, that they were worthy of disregard. But let me tell you something. Nietzsche's gone and, and he's largely discredited, discredited. But Jesus and his followers continue to be praised and continue to transform the world through the power that's exemplified, at least in some ways, by a child. That's real power. Verse 49. Now John answered and said, I wonder if John wasn't just trying to change the subject here because it was getting a little too awkward. John answered and said, Master, we saw somebody casting out demons in your name, and we forbade him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said, do not forbid him, because he who is not against us is on our side. Well, I find this fascinating, don't you? John says, Jesus, we found people casting out demons in your name, but we told them to stop because he doesn't follow us. Now, please remember, Jesus had other disciples other than just the twelve. There was a larger group of, I don't know, the, you know, more distant disciples that followed Jesus as well. They weren't all just numbered among the twelve. There were also many disciples of John the Baptist who might have mixed in and out of the followers of Jesus from time to time. So these were people who knew enough about Jesus to successfully cast out demons in his name. That's what it said they did. And they were actually successful at it. That's what John says. They were successful at casting out demons in the name of Jesus. And John's first reaction is, hey, we should tell those guys to stop. Isn't that strange? What did Jesus reply? Verse 50. Do not forbid him, for he who is not against us is on our side. Jesus told them to have a more generous spirit. You see, it's a very difficult thing, but I'll give you the overview of this. First of all, there are many people who are wrong in some aspect of their presentation of teaching, yet they still set forth Jesus in some manner. What do you do? Well, you let God deal with them. Those who are not against a biblical Jesus are still on our side, at least in some way. Now, what makes this difficult? is sometimes there are people who are so fundamentally flawed in what they teach, even though they may open a Bible and claim to teach biblical truth, but they're so fundamentally flawed in their understanding and their presentation of Jesus that you can't say that they're on our side. You, you can't say that they, they would be against us, so to speak. But when you look out in the Christian world broadly and you say, no, we are preaching the same Jesus. I wouldn't do it the same way. I wouldn't do it with their hairdo. I wouldn't do it with their, you know, ambiance. I wouldn't do it with all the, you know, shell that they put around it. But at the end of the day, I can't deny that in whatever awkward and sometimes embarrassing way that they're doing it, that they're presenting the biblical Jesus. What did Jesus say to do with those? Let them alone. It's kind of the same heart that Paul spoke about later on in Philippians chapter 1. Paul saw many men preaching Christ from many motives, and some of them were evil motives, yet he could rejoice that Christ himself was being preached. Again, there's a careful line for us to observe here. Here's the line. 
We never want to be afraid or hesitant about correcting those who need to be corrected about fundamental biblical truth, especially when it comes to who Jesus is and what he came to do for us. But we never want to be over-censorious, over-critical of those who we mainly disagree with on stylistic things or on side issues. Ladies and gentlemen, it takes a lot of wisdom to navigate that. That's one of the reasons why you should pray for pastors and teachers and leaders in the body of Christ, that God would give them wisdom to do that and to do it properly. Verse 51. Now it came to pass when the time had come for him to be received up, that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem and sent messengers before his face. And as they went, they entered a village of the Samaritans to prepare for him but they did not receive him because his face was set for the journey to Jerusalem. When we come to verse 51, we come to a new phase in the Gospel of Luke. And I want you to understand, we're not even halfway through the book yet, but actually we're already towards the closing acts of Jesus' life. We're already at that point where he's going to make his final journey to Jerusalem where he will be betrayed and crucified and ultimately rise from the dead. As verse 51 says, the time had come for him to be received up. Now he would be received up to the higher elevation of the city of Jerusalem. Now he would be received up on a cross. Now he would be received up ultimately to heaven in a glorious ascension. So what did he do? Jesus, knowing exactly what was in front of him, he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. He undertook that final journey to Jerusalem, knowing exactly what was ahead of him, and he walked resolutely towards it. You know, there's two kind of courage that a person can have. There's the kind of courage that demands just the courage of the moment, of the instinct. And, And that's a very legitimate kind of courage. You know, it's the kind of courage where the soldier jumps upon the grenade. He doesn't have time to think about it, does he? He doesn't have time to think, well, I wonder what the explosive power of it is. I wonder that. No, it's just that instinct of a moment. You jump on the grenade. You push the person out of the way of the bus. You know, you take the hit, whatever it is. There's the courage of the moment, and that's legitimate. But there's a different kind of courage there, isn't it? There's a kind of courage that looks at something that's going to be long, that's going to be slow, that's going to be difficult, and you say, I'm going to walk into this knowing everything that's in front of me, and God helping me, I'm going to be faithful to him and glorify him in the midst of it. I'm not going to say one kind of courage is greater than another, but I don't think we appreciate that second kind of courage as, as much. There's some of you, your lives are filled with that second kind of courage. You look at things in front of you right now, and you know This is not going to be easy. This is a difficult road that Jesus Christ has put in front of me, but it's the road he's put in front of me, and God helping me, I'm going to walk it to his glory. That's where Jesus was going right now. His face was steadfastly set to go to Jerusalem. I like what Isaiah chapter 50, verse 7 says about this, speaking prophetically of the Messiah. Check this out, Isaiah 57. For the Lord God will help me, therefore I will not be disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I will not be ashamed. I think that spoke prophetically of Jesus at just this moment in the Gospel of Luke, 
Like a hardened flint, Jesus said, I am going to Jerusalem to suffer and die. And if you look at Jesus' face, so to speak, it's hardened. Not in the sense of being angry or, or, or becoming a hard man, but in the sense of having focus and focus through a difficult time. So what did they do? Jesus, with this resolute courage, they go into a village of the Samaritans and they get rejected. Now, this is interesting. Jesus is traveling from the north of Galilee down to the south of Judea, and in between is the region of Samaria. That's why it says in verse 52, they entered a village of the Samaritans to prepare for him. Now, again, with Galilee in the north, Samaria in the middle, and Judea in the south, normally... The Jewish pilgrims avoided Samaria and went on the outskirts of it, making for a longer journey, but at least they didn't have to mess with those prejudiced Samaritans. Jesus says, no, on this journey, I'm going to go right down through the middle of Samaria. And what did the Samaritans do? Did the Samaritans go, oh, Jesus, we're so glad to have you among us. No. Instead, the Samaritans said, we don't like you here. You're one of those Jewish people on your way from Galilee to Jerusalem. We don't like that you've come into our area. It was unusual that Jesus went this particular way. So what was the reaction? Well, look at this, verse 54. And when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and to consume them just as Elijah did? That's pretty good, isn't it? First of all, it just strikes you, doesn't it? No wonder these guys were called by Jesus Boangeries, the sons of thunder. That's in Mark chapter 3, verse 17. It says that Jesus called James and John, who were brothers, the sons of thunder. You better believe it. These were hotheads. Now, doesn't this blow your mind even more when you think about the letter of 1 John? The letter of 1 John is almost sappy. It's so filled with love. It's just the most loving letter that's ever been written. It's just like, wow, it's just oozing with the love of Jesus. And to realize that it was the son of thunder who wrote that, that's a life transformed by Jesus Christ. Because here he's like, Jesus, do you want us to call down fire from heaven just like Elijah did and just torch just to nuke this whole city? How about it, Jesus? You have to think that Jesus just laughed a little bit in himself. I, I wish, oh, I, when you get to heaven, you're going to have to ask Jesus this. You're going to have to ask Jesus why he didn't say this. Go ahead. As if these guys could do it, right? But maybe because they knew Jesus would say no, they asked him about it first. Jesus, do you want us to do this? And what did Jesus do? Verse 55 here, he says, but he turned and rebuked them and said, you do not know what manner of spirit you're of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's life, but to save them. And they went to another village. He rebuked them. Their offense, even if it was on behalf of Jesus, their offense wasn't appreciated. You see, the determination of Jesus to say, I'm going to Jerusalem. It wasn't like, I'm going to Jerusalem, and I'm going to call down fire from heaven, and anybody who gets in my way. No, it's like, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, and I'm going to pay the price. I'm going to suffer the cost. 
which is exactly what he did. You see, they saw the face of Jesus with all of its focus, and they thought it meant that he was mean or tough. No, it meant that he was going to go and show the ultimate demonstration of love, not the ultimate demonstration of anger. So what did Jesus tell them? Verse 55, he said, you don't know what manner of spirit you are of, for the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. You don't know yourselves, Jesus said, and you don't even really know me. You don't understand that I didn't come down from heaven to burn men up. I came to save them. I came to rescue them. There's something wrong when preachers preach about hell, when they preach about the judgment of God, which they should do because it's real. But there's an attitude that you hear occasionally from preachers when they seem to take pleasure in it. When they don't realize that what Jesus came to do was to rescue people from hell. And and we don't want to flinch on recognizing the reality of hell and, and the terrible nature of God's judgment. But there should always be a breaking of the heart that's there in the preacher when they explain that. A breaking of the heart that explains God's breaking of the heart, even over necessary judgment. Verse 57. Now it happened as they journeyed on the road that somebody said to him, Lord, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Now notice this. Verse 57 tells us of a man who came to Jesus volunteering to follow him. Jesus probably received many invitations like, Jesus, I want to be one of your followers. Uh, Take me into your group. And what did Jesus say? Jesus essentially said to him, do you even know what you're asking for here? Do you know what you're doing? Do you know what it's like to follow me? Jesus did not say, no, you can't follow me. But he told him the truth without painting a glamorized picture. Hey, fella, if you're going to follow me, we camp out every night. We don't have nice homes that we live in. We travel around from place to place, and we live basically on the kindness of other people. That's the life you live if you want to be one of my disciples. Are you willing to do that? That's what Jesus called them to. Now listen, the man turned away because Jesus lived a very simple life by faith, trusting his Father to meet every need. And this is what I want you to understand. What Jesus explained to the man was that this was something that should have appealed to a truly spiritual man. A truly spiritual man would have understood, yes, this is wonderful, Jesus. It's wonderful that you depend upon your father this intimately. I want to follow you for that. But instead, seemingly, this man turned away. He didn't follow Jesus. Verse 59. Then he said to another, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Jesus said, let the dead bury their own dead. But you go and preach the kingdom of God. So here's a second man who comes up to Jesus. And different from the first man, the second man says to Jesus, hey, uh, Jesus, here I am. And Jesus says to him, you follow me. I'm enlisting you in my cause. And what did the man say? Verse 59, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Now, nobody should think for a minute that the guy's father was dead. And, and, you know, he's laid out in his casket, and he just has to dig a grave. No, that's not the idea at all. 
The idea is that his father was elderly, or at least somewhat, and he was supposed to wait around until his father died. And they said, okay, Jesus, once that family obligation is out of the way, then I can really serve you. Then I can really, this is what he was saying to Jesus. Jesus, I'll follow you, but not just yet. I know this is good. I know that I should do it. It's a noble thing, and I really will live full on for you, but not just yet. And what did Jesus say? Jesus said, no, you do it now or seemingly never. I tell you, that's a very powerful thing, isn't it? How many people do you know that have a heart to live for Jesus? And I'm not talking about being necessarily in full-time ministry or anything like that. I'm just talking about a life lived in whatever calling, in whatever occasion, whatever place God puts you, and saying, I'm going to live my life for God's glory every day. I say, no, I'm going to do that someday, but not just yet. Jesus said, no, you've got to do it now. Let the dead bury their own dead. Jesus pressed the man to follow him now before any other obligation. No, you've got to put me first. That was a radical call to discipleship. And then thirdly, finally, let's look at the last two verses of the chapter. And another also said, Lord, I'll follow you, but let me first go and bid them farewell who are at my house. But Jesus said to him, no one having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. The previous man said, Jesus, I'll follow you, but first a long, maybe indefinite delay. This man says, no, Jesus, but just a short delay. Let let me go and just say goodbye to all those people. And Jesus said, no, you've got to do it now. And Jesus used a very important illustration here, the illustration of a man plowing. And once your hand is put to the plow, you can't look back. You can picture that in your mind, can't you? Can't you picture an ox pulling an old plow? And here's the plowman, the farmer. He's doing his work there, and he's got his hands on the two arms of the plow, and he's looking forward. If he doesn't look forward, if he's looking back all the time, he's going to make crazy furrows that can't do good farming and can't have good crops. No, there's two things that that farmer has to do if he's going to be successful in his work in plowing and plant a good field. Number one, he's got to look forward, not behind. What a great word that is for us this first Wednesday of a new year, isn't it? Oh, it's not like there's nothing you can learn from looking behind. Occasionally a glance back is fine. But ladies and gentlemen, have your focus on what God is doing in your life right now. Keep your focus forward. But secondly, secondly, you've got to keep your hand to the plow. Do you realize that so much of plowing a good field is involved in just holding on? And that's you. You know, God puts this in front of you now, the time allotted to a new year. And what does he say to you? He says, listen, grab onto that plow, look forward, and in a year's time, next year, 2014, although Jesus, come first for us, please, this year. But if Jesus doesn't come first before 2014, Are you going to still be holding on to that plow and looking forward just the way that he has for you, just as it's right now? I pray so. I pray each and every one of you. I pray some of you get a tighter grip onto that plow right now tonight. You've been trying to plow with one hand. You've been paying patty cake with that plow. Forget it. Get a good grip. Hold on and say, listen, I'll let Jesus do the pulling. I'm going to keep my focus where it is. And I'm going to keep my hand to the plow and not let go. Isn't that a beautiful picture for what it means to be a follower of Jesus?
All right, let me close with this. You want to know how much God loves you? Look, think of what the devil did with that poor boy. Made his life miserable. Wanted to destroy him. That's what the devil does to a little boy. This is how much God loves us. Look at what Jesus did with the little child. He hugged him, brought him into his midst and said, this is the example of my kingdom. That's the kind of love God wants you to receive from him tonight. So you can hold on a little bit tighter onto that plow that he has you to pull for this next year coming in front of you. Father, that's my prayer. I pray, God, for everybody here tonight. I pray, Lord, that there's probably some, they've just been looking at the plow, so to speak. I pray, God, that you'd help them to grab on. Lord, for those of us who are holding on, help us to get a better grip. And just to say, Jesus, we want to look forward and hold on. And Lord, you filling us and blessing us and helping us, we will. So guide us into it, Jesus. And thank you, Lord. Thank you for allowing us to spend some time tonight looking at Jesus, hearing his words. And Lord, just sort of... uh, sort of enjoying the presence of Jesus in our midst. We pray this, Lord, in your son's precious name. Amen.